This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. One of the major themes that has been coming up uh, on the first day of coverage from the Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference is the idea of looking at financial and retirement planning, those golden years, in a holistic and mindful way. Joni Youngworth is Managing Principal of Practice Management at Commonwealth Financial Network, developed and now runs Commonwealth's Mindful Retirement Programs. I love the name of it. She's with us on site here uh, in Colorado. Um, You know what I was curious? If you went back five or ten years and you went to, like, the heads of financial advisors firms and retirement planning firms and said, hey, listen, I want to do a mindful retirement program. They'd be like, wait, what are you talking about? Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how we've evolved in terms of how we think about retirement. Well, you know, before it used to be all about money. and Winning the lottery, perhaps? Well, (laughs) or just your savings and getting into a position where you're ready financially for retirement. But, But about 10 years ago, maybe seven years ago, I had an advisor call and he said, Joni, I see all these clients and I've worked with them a decade or two and they're all ready for retirement financially. We've gotten there. They've got enough money. Then I watched them retire and they're not always happy. They've got all the money. Right. They're all set financially, but they're not ready for retirement emotionally. They're not ready in terms of living fully in that last stage of life. And that last stage of life is so much longer than it used to be, even 10 years ago. So um, he said, what, what do you have to help me? At the time, I had nada. But uh, since then, it put us on a stage and, and a platform for building things that our advisors can use. And so what does that look like? What are you arming them with? And, and as you go into these workshops and, and whatnot, what, what are you doing with folks? It depends. There's many things. In about 20 minutes, I have a presentation I'm giving, and it's um, questions advisors need to think about in terms of their interaction with clients about retirement, including what do you call it? Mm. You know, the R word uh, sets us a little bit on the wrong path. I love some of the work that MIT has done, the MIT Age Lab, Mm -hmm. and they talk about the last 8,000 days of life as being the phase of exploration. So, you know, we have 8,000 days of learning and 8,000 days of growing and 8,000 days of maturing and 8,000 days of, and one might used to say retire, but, but no, no, it's exploration. And I love that because I think it puts us on the hook. You know, we don't just sit back there and say, I'm gonna retire now and do it the way our parents did it or our grandparents. They only had this much time. We've got... Oops. That's okay. We're just... Sometimes the, sometimes the headphones fall off. It's happened to me. Sometimes we all get excited. And you get excited. Yeah. But, you know, I think that is such a good point. So many things are different from how our parents, certainly how our grandparents did it. Um, so what's the conversation? You sit down with somebody and said, okay, financially you guys are set. Emotionally, how do you walk them through them? What are the questions? What are the things that they need to think about so that they're emotionally prepared for retirement? Well, I think there's, you know, we can go to many gurus in this area, but there are buckets of things you look at. 
one is the whole concept of working in retirement. So mm-hmm. people used to think retirement meant you stop working. You're playing golf. But, yeah. Right? Yeah. but if we talk about this being the exploration Knitting. phase, working is part of it. I think the uh, Department of Labor says that 44% of people will continue to work past 65 in the next 10 years or so. So more and more and more of us are working way past 65. I see it with, I have a, I'm from a large family and I have older siblings and they are going into retirement, but they are working and not looking to, you know, they're financially set, but they're thinking about, okay, maybe I'll now run my own little business or something. Like they're thinking about kind of a whole second life. And it's really fascinating to see how that's working. Yeah. And a second life where you grow and develop and you have an explosion of learning. And I think about this for myself because I'm that age and I've loved my career, but where do I get one of those next explosions of learning and growth in my next decade and beyond? But I also think about it, how it impacts the labor force. On a day where we're talking about the job market, when you do have older individuals, right, they're not just going off to the golf course or what have you, uh, but they're staying in the workforce and whether that can be a positive or just, how, you know, it affects it. Well, it also leads to this question of how many people are doing that by choice and how many people are doing it sort of because they, they have to. Right. Well, a ton are doing it yeah. because they have to, uh, for sure. That group of folks are not necessarily the group that our financial advisors are working with. Are yeah. working with. Um, and I think it raises a whole other social issue for our country Right, is that we have so many people that are unprepared. Here in this community, though, you know, we're talking about really a different set of people who are prepared financially and are looking for more. They're looking beyond golf, beyond knitting, beyond bingo, beyond all that stuff that used to be enough. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. No, No, there isn't. I really want to play more golf. Adjuncts to that. I want to play bingo. And so as you talk to people, what are some things that have surprised you in terms of what they choose to do? Because Mm -hmm. if you're talking about a financially stable group of people, the world's their oyster in a lot of ways. They're very healthy. They're taking good care of themselves. So they have both the physical ability and the fiscal ability uh, to then make these choices. So what are they choosing to do? Oh, it's it's all over the place. But I'll give you an example. I was doing one of these mindful retirement workshops for one of our advisor's clients. And there were maybe 20, 30 people in the room. Um, and we had gone through things like work and retirement and health and wellness. And we've gone through family relations and leisure and social and personal development. And, and we got to this point. I remember this man. He was an ENT. He was 62 years old, and we were talking about working in retirement. And I asked the question, what did you want to be when you were in high school? Mm. And I saw this transformation as he was sitting there in the audience. And he said, you know, I always wanted to do theater. Mm -hmm. And I let all that go because as a physician, no time even to go to theater, much less to participate. And he said, I can start a theater of my own. I can be the theater director. I can put on local performances. And that was a really fun example. And all all it was was that question, well, what did you want to be? And he just exploded into, 
I forgot about this. Right. This is a huge opportunity. So you find your ways of, of helping people envision something other than the, what they've done for the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Well, and technology and travel and all of that, I would imagine, just really opens up the world e- even more for everyone. Yeah, travel's really an interesting one because it's one of the number one things people say they're going to do in retirement. And when you look at the data... They don't do it. They don't do it, it as much. It, they don't do it yeah. as much. They say the, they want to. For, yeah. but, but it's for predictable reasons. It can be for money or it can be for health right. reasons. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Really interesting. Love your energy. Joni Youngworth. She is Managing Principal of pra- uh, Practice Management at Commonwealth Financial Network on site here at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. Everybody's working for the Yes, we are. We're all talking about uh, the labor market today. And of course, we oh, are. I thought we were all talking about the weekend. So <laughs> we are that too. Yeah. Uh, we got to talk about today's jobs report. Lindsay Pieg's uh, uh, certainly uh, a known guest, friend of the show, uh, chief economist, uh, Stiefel Financial, on the phone from Chicago. Lindsay, it was interesting to watch as everybody weighed in on the jobs report this morning because I feel like some were, all right, another sign of economic slowdown in the U.S. Others were like, yeah, not so bad. Um, how do you see it? Oh, I think it was pretty disappointing. It fell short of even the lower bar of expectations and uh, reaching a four-month low, pulling that three-month average now closer to just 150000 And the most disappointing component that I saw was average hourly earnings flat in September, pulling that annual growth rate now below 3% for the first time since mid-2018. So I, I do think there's a number of red flags here that suggest the labor market is slowing. And I think coupled with the very disappointing ISM manufacturing and non-manufacturing numbers we saw earlier this week, this really puts a lot of pressure on the Fed to take action at the upcoming October FOMC meeting. And so given what you just said, and your analysis I think is shared by many, Lindsay, then you look at the stock market today and investors seem to be saying, no, it's cool. We're good. We're going to drive all the major indices up more than 1% at this point in the trade. So why that reaction, do you think? Well, I think that because there, was, because there wasn't just one data point that was weak, there wasn't just two, there was three. So the market is saying now there's enough evidence that the Fed is going to be forced ah. to act. So it's almost as if it's the initial ISM number the market was very negative about that reaction because they didn't know if it was enough to really tip the hand for the Fed to step in and give us an additional 25 basis points. Then we saw the service sector. The market said, well, maybe this is enough. Then we saw a moderate jobs number, and investors seemed convinced that the Fed will be forced to provide that third-round rate cut in October. The unemployment out of the bad news. Yeah, well, the unemployment rate, though, did dip, right? So 3.5%, 3.7% was the survey that we had here at Bloomberg. Unemployment rate also, which we closely watch, um, came in lower than the month before. How do you read that? Is that a positive or is it people just kind of giving up? Well, I think it's both. Uh, on the one hand, we have seen the unemployment rate stubbornly low, not only within what the Fed considers the full employment range, but breaking through that lower bound. And we've been there for quite some time. So I don't know if the unemployment rate is really capturing the level of joblessness out in the market. Because when we look at the millions of Americans that are still sitting on the periphery of the labor market, not participating, that's a lingering structural disconnect that I don't know that it's being accurately captured in these calculations. In fact, if we add it back in 
all of those discouraged workers, all of those marginally attached workers, all of those workers struggling with temporary, low-wage, part-time labor, uh, I, I think the unemployment rate jumps closer to 7 8%. So that paints a much different picture than this record low of uh, 3.5%. And so, you know, you did a nice job laying out all the data that investors and clearly the Fed have been looking at. Anything else on the horizon that could either cement this decision, as, as, you, as it sounds like you're saying the Fed is getting closer to, or could introduce some doubt for the market? Anything else you're looking at? Well, I think the consumer is the big question mark, because as we saw in the second quarter, the consumer was the sole organic support to growth. And if the consumer numbers begin to falter, I think the question will not be whether or not we see an October rate cut, but how big of an October rate cut. We could start hearing the market price in a 50 basis point or even 75 basis point cut, depending on whether or not we do see pronounced weakness on the consumer side. Now, we're not necessarily looking for extreme weakness, but we do expect to continue to see waning momentum. Again, keeping the Fed on track for an October cut, but likely more a modest cut around 25 basis points. Is there some, though, you know, something positive to be made, though, that the service industry subcategories, which are vulnerable to weak factory data or factory conditions, um, they did post net hiring gains? I'm looking at some analysis by our Bloomberg intelligence team. Is that not a positive? Oh, I think there are some pockets of positive, absolutely. And I think it's also tempting to look at that non-manufacturing number and say, well, it was still above 50. So we're still seeing an expansion in the service sector. But we have to be careful because looking at that from a nominal perspective, we're actually seeing not only that non-manufacturing activity fell below that uh, that trough that we reached in 2016, but we're now well below the pre-recessionary levels that we saw in the service sector going into the 01 recession and mm-hmm. going into the 07 crisis. So we are seeing very clear recessionary red flags being posted in the service sector, even though we're still seeing modest growth. All right. Well, we're always uh, happy to get your analysis. Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist at Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Chicago, breaking down the jobs report, which the market likes because it provides maybe a little bit more certainty as to what we may see from Jay Powell and friends. Right. That easy monetary uh, environment continues. are definitely in Colorado, mountains all around You can see the Rocky Mountains practically from where we're sitting. Pretty gorgeous, right? Yeah, it's nice. So Commonwealth Financial Network, they began working with independent financial advisors back in 1979. So here we are, I think 40 years, right? 40 years later, a lot has changed and continues to do so in the investment arena. Let's get some perspective. Trap Kloman is with us. He's president and chief operating officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, of course, on site with us. Our host. He is our host. And, you know, we're kind of marveling like go back to kind of when it started and kind of where we are today in terms of what really consumes uh the work of financial advisors uh, sure I, it's it's been a tremendous journey and having been in the industry about 15 years i've seen a good chunk of it but it goes back so much farther than that and just some hugely influential visionary people um really back in the you know in our case 1979 but really took off in the late 80s and into the 90s uh, really had a vision for what uh, financial advice could become. Uh, it's much more than just uh, asset allocation and investment selection. Uh, and to watch the evolution of the industry, uh, and it's only accelerating right now, as I think what financial advisors can do for retail as investors, it's almost like healthcare at this point. You really need a trusted person who understands everything about you 
um, and all the skills that come into that as a financial advisor. Um, it's more than just finance and understanding the markets. It's being a psychologist. It's being a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's being a visionary and looking forward uh, and really helping people on very complex things. Right. And that, that sort of human element has come through, you know, sort of loud and clear here. And we're sitting sort of in the midst of all of it. You can sort of hear a lot of it yeah. in the background as people move from session to session. And, you know, even as people walk by, I mean, you've got a lot of slices of life here re- represented, it feels like, different ages, you know, folks who are, you know, needy to really connect with people. How do you arm people to do that? Because it's one thing to sort of teach them how to use a software program mm-hmm. and input numbers and things like that. But, you know, those sort of, dare I say, softer skills of being able to connect with human beings, how, how do you arm them to do that? Yeah, it's, uh, that in and of itself is changing. It's a great time in terms of the tools and resources that we have available to really help and connect with people. But the reality is for the, you know, the majority of the first 40 years in Commonwealth's case is we had about a two and a half advisors to one home office staff ratio, um, which is pretty much the lowest or best, however you want to phrase it, in the industry. It was really making those personal connections and us understanding the individual advisors and their needs instead of giving them a cookie-cutter playbook. Yeah. Uh, but we're growing to a size and scale where that's you know becoming more challenging. But at the same time, there's so much more out there and ways to reach pe- uh, people uh, through a learning, training, and development and utilizing gamification. And so we're investing more in a learning and development team and using marketing to help deliver that uh, to advisors while still frankly, uh, maintain that same ratio of employees. We're talking with Trap Kloman, President and Chief Operating Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. Trap, what do you guys, because you, you have to think ahead, too, about what your members, your the financial advisors that you work with, guide, what will be the trends of the future? So I'm curious, who do you look at? Is it Facebook? Is it Google? Is it, I don't know, what are you looking at? Maybe it's something else in terms of trying to figure out, okay, what these financial advisors have to know about for the future for their clients. Yeah, I think it's important to uh, look around both for inspiration, but also um, how to differentiate yourself. Uh, I think uh, Joe, uh, Peter Wheeler, and the rest of the team that's really led this company for the past 30 years have done an unbelievable job of uh, sticking to what they do best while uh, surveying the environment. And I think a great example is on the technology side. Technology is being so much uh, applied to help uh, with service, Mm -hmm. but it's really disintermediating the customer experience. And so technology is being used to drive down cost and uh, really uh, frustrate people. But as soon as the technology is aware that the customer is about to leave or quit altogether, walk away from your cable provider, walk away from your phone company, all of a sudden the live person pops on and offers you what you've been wanting for the past hour on the phone. And I don't want to replicate that experience. Uh, It might be more cost effective, but that's a horrible relationship. And so as we think about what we do, I'm really looking around the world uh, for (coughs) firms that are doing a good job with the human element because that's what we need our advisors to do with their clients. That's going to differentiate right. them. Um, and so we want to do the same with our advisors. Uh, so at a gathering like this, obviously, you know, cool seminars, cool speeches, all that. But we all know the most fun conversations happen at the bar, over <laughs> yes. dinner or whatever. You know, as all these people we get together. last night. We, yeah, we had a lot of great conversations last night. What are you hearing as you, as you sort of work your way around and, and interact with folks? Because there are a lot of people, we were talking about this before we came on air, who know each other. They sort of get together yeah. uh, every year. What are you hearing from people that's striking you as the most interesting? I, frankly, I, I'm, I'm thrilled and I've loved We came into this week and the markets are very volatile right now. 
um, especially in the financial services space. And when everyone's here on site together, you worry a little bit about the distraction and you know p- people being pulled away from this experience. Yeah. It's a yeah. very personal experience. And I think if our advisors were focused on solely performance in the market um, and chasing that return, and that's their value proposition to their clients, they'd all be you know, running back home or on their phone. But they're all here, they're present, they're working with each other because I think they've done a fantastic job providing such more value and service to their clients than just promising uh, the market. And they really educate them. So the more educated your client are, um, they're prepared for things like this, and it doesn't create panic or chaos. And so uh, that, that I think that's been the number one thing that's really um, thrilled me this week and it's really come through well. I think what's also interesting is you hear more uh, individuals, folks who are running their own um, advisory firms, you know, bringing in their kids, thinking about the next yeah. generation. I mean, that's a big thing. When we look about, you know, here we are in jobs day, um, maybe the data came in weaker than expected, but it is very yeah. tight. And we constantly hear about uh, companies and employers having a hard time finding workers. And I do think thinking about training that next generation of financial advisors, that's a big topic. Uh, it, it is, and it's, it gets a lot of coverage in the news about the average age of the advisors is getting older every year, mm-hmm. you know, 54, 55, and where's the next generation going to come from? And frankly, I'm not that worried, uh, primarily from the viewpoint of our advisors are doing a fantastic job of identifying wonderful people, and oftentimes it is a son or daughter, uh, to bring into their practices. What we need to do is help them train those people, but the advisors are really finding the answers for themselves because they, they're small business owners. They're entrepreneurs. Um, they have a lot at stake here, both in terms of uh, the business they created, but making sure their clients are taken care of. Right. So they're solving that for us, and we, we, we can help them with the training uh, to make sure the next generations are ready. All right. Well, it's great to catch up with you. We really appreciate you. your hospitality uh, here at this lovely event. Trap Cloman is president and chief operating officer of Commonwealth Financial Network. He's here with us at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. Just It's blue skies, just a few clouds as far as it's the gorgeous. eye can see here uh, on the front range. All right, well, let's dig into the world of venture capital. Jeff Grabo back with us. He is U.S. venture capital leader for Ernst & Young, EY, as it's known. He joins us on the phone from New York. He's usually based out on the West Coast in San Jose. So we've heard everything that's going on in the VC world, but now we got some fresh data from the third quarter. Jeff, great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right. So what's the takeaway here? What do we know uh, coming out of the third quarter about the state of venture capital? Because the public markets have been a little skeptical about some of the venture-backed companies that are coming public. Well, I mean, we finished the third quarter uh, with $25.9 billion going into the, you know, into venture-backed companies. It's the third straight decline. It's down 15% quarter on quarter, but it's still really strong. And, you know, we are on pace exactly where we were a year ago today. And we will have our second successive $100 billion year of uh, venture-backed investment into companies, So, which is which is worse. So we're continuing to be in record territory. Record territory. You're talking U.S., correct? These are U.S. The US numbers? These are U.S. numbers, yes. So there's no chill or chilling effect in Silicon Valley as a result of... You know, how Uber has played out this year, how Lyft has played out this year, um, you know, obviously Slack, uh, WeWork, WeWork, right, oh. not happening, Peloton. No one kind of slowing down in terms of where they're investing? Well, I think right now where we are is, you know, we've, nothing stays up forever. 
you know, and then especially in the, you know, in the near micro term. So what we're hearing is companies are being told to get out and make sure that they're fully funded because as you look out across the macro environment, there's a lot of uncertainties, you know, Brexit, trade wars, potential recession, you know, uh, global, in, you know, instability. Uh, we keep getting data points that bounce around. So uh, they're being encouraged to get out and make sure that they're fully funded to stay, you know, out of the, the tailwinds or the headwinds of anything that's outside of their control. And so, you know, one of the issues, Jeff, that we've been talking a lot about when it comes to Silicon Valley and the venture world is, for lack of a better term, this sort of tech clash that we're seeing. You know, we hear a lot of questions coming from lawmakers and regulators, and I do wonder how that's playing through the funding landscape. Are the VC backers, are they worrying about this? Are they changing behavior at all yet? Well, I think the the better way to look at it is what what does that mean from a M&A perspective? Okay. Because, you know, if large corporations that are currently public are coming under scrutiny, they're not they may not be necessarily looking at making large acquisitions that may make them look even more monopolistic. So that could slow that level, you know, that exit opportunity uh, and push, you know, companies more towards the public markets. So more going public because they're they're not going to have that avenue toward uh, being acquired by a big tech company just because the appetite's not going to be there because of some of the uncertainty. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it depends upon the size of the transaction and you know you know how closely aligned it is. But I just think that that's going to be something that y- you need to think about as you move forward. That that may not be you know the option to have that may not be there as it has been in the past. Um, I am curious, too, about, you know, if the uncertainty continues, though, in the overall market and economic environment, we got the jobs data today, and there's, you know, some are reading some of the positives out of it. Some are seeing, you know, more of the negative uh, or seeing it as more of a negative report. If we continue to see kind of this environment of uncertainty continue, Jeff, what would you anticipate as the impact on uh, venture capital? Well, at some point, we're going to see a slowing of funding, and that's, you know, we've been talking about that over a period of time, and mm-hmm. you know, I guess a broken clock is right twice a day. You know, so it's a, but it's you know, if I knew exactly when it were, you know, if the clock was going to stop, I would, you know, uh, uh, things would be a lot easier. Uh, but you know, you don't. But things will not, con- you know, can't continue on this pace. And uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint, in the venture business. And so you can't keep sprinting forever. And I'd say we've been in a sprint for a few years. Um, picking up the pace. And at some point, you need to kind of get down. You know, we've been sprinting. At some point, you need to, to clock back to pace. And trade war, any impacts you're seeing so far in specific sectors? Well, I think um, some, outla- you know, some outlying tech frontier areas like agritech, you know, trade wars haven't been friendly to farmers, which is going to impact their ability to buy and invest. Right. So, you know, it's kind of a direct, in- you know, an early direct investment, depending upon how deep those uh, – how deep and long this goes, that could be, you know, branch out in other areas. Great to catch up with you. As always, Jeff Grabo, U.S. Venture Capital Leader for EY, joined us on the phone from New York City on his way back to San Jose, where he's based. You know, what's interesting, while we're seeing venture deals in the U.S. up second quarter from a year ago, European investments also up. China, they plummeted 77% according to Prequin. That was second quarter from a year ago. So we're seeing certainly um, not so much activity, and we know some of the questions about the outlook there uh, and the investment outlook. Oh. 
So we have been thrilled to be here in Colorado. It's so beautiful. It Carol saw some bison. I've gone for some nice runs. We ate have been some doing some work. We <laughs> ate some bison. Circle of life here uh, on the front range. Uh, Richard Wabakin is an associate dean for business and government relations at University of Colorado at Boulder. Up the road, he was teaching downtown. He was nice enough to come and spend some time with us uh, here in Aurora. Rich, great to have you with us. My pleasure. He's also had to put up with us, like, stealing each other's food. He's a little and, nervous. Yeah, he's a little nervous yeah, about I, what's going to happen next. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Thank you for refereeing what's going on here. Um, but tell us about where we are, because we were just talking to you before we came on the air. I mean, this, where we're sitting, is a fascinating place. We're about 15 minutes from the airport, about half an hour or so from downtown. This was the planes not too long ago it was the planes not too long ago they bought 50 square miles of property to put the airport in back in the 1990s with the long-run plan of developing around it way out from the city can add more runways when they need to add more concourses when they need to and now seventh uh, busiest airport in the world i think at this point but top five in the u.s in terms of flights in and out and uh, the most connected airport in the entire United States in terms of direct flights to other cities. So this is an ideal location for this particular facility in terms of doing conferences and quick in and out. Well, and that airport and and places like this have contributed to Denver being one of the fastest-growing economies, too. It's a boomtown right now. It is a boomtown. I think there's a variety of uh, answers to that question. We've Since the airport in the 90s and ever since, we've really diversified the economy Mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, We've had a very strong uh, telecom sector, and that connects. It started out, now it's kind of laughable, but it started out because we had one-bounce communications to Europe and to Japan during the workday, so we were kind of time zone. We were ideally Uh, located, and our telecom sector has been very strong, but we also have very strong tourism. We have an ag sector. We're a top 10 energy producing state. So it's a combination of factors. I, what I love about what's going on here is that while we kind of take off in a big picture and look at the national unemployment rate, what's going on in the jobs picture, it's a reminder that city states are moving along, you know, moving forward with infrastructure investments, thinking about what their cities or what their state needs to be in the future. I mean, I, this is pretty interesting. This is long term planning, and you're seeing it have an impact. Well, at the time the airport was built, there hadn't been another one new airport built in the U.S. in like 20 years. Right. And it really was an aim at moving forward. And then we've had political leaders since, the mayor, who later became the governor, who really invested in the downtown Denver infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Hickenlooper you're talking about, right? right, Yeah. John Hickenlooper, creative class kind of attraction of art museums and bike paths and jogging and if you thought the jogging was nice out here, you should see what the jogging is in downtown. Denver. Oh, I know. It's, it's so incredible. gorgeous. I mean, and it is such an outdoor vibe. And we spent so much of our yeah. time here talking about people taking a much more holistic view of their financial planning, much less their lives. And that's the vibe here for sure. That is the vibe here for sure. I mean, quality of life, we've been able to attract a very well-educated workforce. We're in the top five to ten states for uh, population growth every year. And it's because people want to live here. 
Well, that's a, that's an important part. You know, here we are on Jobs Day, right? We got the monthly jobs report, and I do think about companies and institutions competing for workers. I mean, what you folks are doing to attract companies in and to also bring in workers. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it, but it is a big issue. We have a very tight labor force. Our unemployment rate's under three percent, mm. and right, and even though we're um, top five kind of job generating state, it's keeping the labor force very uh, tight. Uh, one thing of interest compared to the country as a whole is we've had a pretty big increase in labor force participation over the last couple of years. It's been kind of flat nationally, but a lot of people have come back into the workforce. Meaning older workers? Older workers and um, dual-income households right. and so on. We've seen a pretty big surge in that, and we're several percentage points higher in terms of labor force participation. Do you have a sense yet from a net economic uh, effect of legalizing marijuana? You know, we don't have a total picture when when this um, – certainly we know it's generated tax revenues. Sure. And that's been a positive. Um, we, d- we do feel that it's had a positive effect on certain aspects of tourism. Mm-hmm. People come have come to, you know, get high, whatever. Rocky Mountain High <laughs> in, the, in the ultimate sense, yeah. right? Uh, but it, There's well the slogan. Yeah, well, well uh, I'm, I'm just saying. T-shirts you know. are, you know, you can pick, your t- pick up your T-shirt on the way out, right? Okay, good. That's good. Uh, but, you know, it has both sides of it. There's sure. the aspect of it, you know, younger people maybe smoking pop more and those types of things. So, net-net, I think most people think it's worked out much better than they had hoped for. Right. Uh but now with so many other states legalizing, yeah. it's probably run its course. So got to ask you from weed to economists, uh, you got a bunch descending this weekend, right, for the big conference next week. You've been involved in the planning. I've been on the uh, planning committee. I'm past president of the National Association for Business Economics, and we have a, a great crowd coming in. What do you think is going to be the biggest topic? We know Jay Powell will be there. We've just got about 40 seconds. What's the big question that you guys all want to Well, help, we're going to have a topic, a discussion of negative interest rates, but I think the biggest things are going to fo- uh, focus on the growth in the global economy, and Europe, and, and what that might be in terms of impact overall. Is there a drinking game like every time we hear the word recession? <laughs> or data dependent? <laughs> or data dependent? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or no. maybe, maybe it involves marijuana instead. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, we'll be checking in actually out here with our own Michael McKee, Bloomberg Television's Michael McKee. He'll be here. We'll be checking in with him. We're so delighted to spend some time That's with great. you, uh, Richard Wabakin. He is Associate Dean for Business and Government Relations involved in the NABE, which will be here yeah. uh, next week. Some really great context I wish we were on sticking around for that. I know, seriously you could see some more bison eat some more bison and you know who knows what would happen it just hey, feels hey, hey easy on the bison <laughs> <laughs> will you still need me will you still feed me when I'm All right, so as we come close to wrapping up our time here at the Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference, a nice forward-looking conversation ahead with Jason Wheeler. He is CEO Wealth Advisor for Pathfinder Wealth Consulting. He's based back east in Wilmington, North Carolina. Good southerner, also a surfer. (laughs) I could talk to you about surfing and probably how jealous I am at how good you are, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, the next generation of financial advisors because it's important and I feel like that succession is something that maybe folks haven't spent as much time on. How are people looking at it now? Yeah, I agree. Um, It's funny, I'm uh, in my mid-40s now and um, I had a lot of people approach me um, about 
their succession plan. And, and thinking about that over the years, it's, it's one of those things that inevitably somebody wants to get their value out of their firm right. when they retire, um, but they also want to control it right till the end. Well, seeing that, it's, it became very obvious. Like how can a firm that grows be able to pass it down to one generation? So you really have to build out that next generation to be able to scale your business and that type of stuff. And um, people were coming to me saying, how have you been successful recruiting this next generation inside your firm when we can't do it and we've got 20 more years of experience on you. So, so how did you do it? What's the secret sauce, Jason? So, um, you know, first of all, I uh, stayed very actively involved in my alma mater. And so wow. I stayed involved in the university. UNC Wilmington? I, is, yeah, yeah. UNC for my graduated from my master's program, became the chair of the Alumni Association. I've stayed involved, but I actually went back and was uh, teaching in the department as an adjunct. And so I just kind of stayed in touch, I, I would say, with the college kids of the day. And so um, that helped. I think being a little bit immature at times helps. Um, <laughs> wanting to be younger all yeah. the time. Okay. Um, Officially, that is my favorite moment yeah, of the day. exactly. <laughs> Love that. So, um, you know, with that said, and, and we were successful in bringing out a gentleman right out of school, and he's been with us now 10, uh, almost 11 years now. And so looking at the next generation, um, we said, well, what are ways that we can sort of attract them? So we've done things like internships. We go back to business week, and I have um, people, you know, we speak in front of people, um, career center, we get on boards. Um, but when we look for that next generation, what I found that really differentiated what people are getting from the independent financial advisors in particular was a track. Like, this is the career ahead of you. Ah. And so what you get is you get the job mm. description that they're looking for. Instead of, this is how your life will progress professionally if you want it to down this. And so the people who came to us, um, ironically, the last two hires were both um, career changers. We had an um, elementary school teacher who was um, finishing up her master's at UNCW and was volunteering at her church with people and their money and decided she wanted to do this professionally. Well, she saw that career path and the trajectory, and so it really got her excited. And in the same one, we had a gentleman, a non-traditional student. He was in the actual food service business, working as a manager at a country club and went back to school because the people at the club said you need to go back to school and got a finance degree. And then again, he saw the, the path ahead of them as far as laying out what are the steps in my career rather than just getting out there and, you know, sort of the way I came up was sales. Yeah. How old were but, these guys um, and gal? So, yeah, tw- 27 to 29. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, it's not that you're not, not necessarily right out of school, um, but still very young and certainly new to our profession. Um, we were fortunate enough, my business partner is 10 years older than me, and then it's me, and then our next one is about 10 years younger than me, that we didn't plan it that way, right. but it's nice to have that. And I think they see that, and so the culture is there. You know? And so what do you think it is that attracts uh, someone who's in their 20s to this business? Because it is a different business. We've certainly gotten that sense from talking to some of your colleagues and, and peers here that it's a different business than it was 10, 20 years ago, for sure. Absolutely. What's different about it? Uh, at the end of the day, I think you know the, the whole idea of that we were becoming more planning-focused, and um, I'm not going to go to the extent that we're someone's psychologist, um, but to the degree... Sometimes it probably yeah, feels that but way. But I just feel like there's a little bit of a therapist as a part of this position. I call it getting, uh, you know, you're getting financially naked. It's kind of like going to the doctor for the first time. All right. Um, Bloomberg Business Week after yeah. dark. It yeah, has exactly. begun. Yeah. But when we think about that, I think they, they see that as a way to actually have a career that gives back. It's an impact yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, you know, hmm. I see big, bigger firms. Um, my friends, I've got a buddy who works for an insurance company. He works from his house. He does um, underwriting for medical claims. He could care less about his company. 
right? He makes a lot of money. So his life is go to work to get a check to have your life. Where I think people in this profession going forward look at it as I'm going to be spending all this time. I want to make a difference with my life. And right. they can see that versus the sort of the, the mindset of all I'm doing is managing money. It's a difference between work to live, live to work Correct. Like concept, right? Yeah. I, I do think certainly the younger generation is thinking an awful lot about that too. Yeah. And I, and I think they see, the, they see the impact directly in the lives of individuals. Right. We had a speaker here that talked about how um, you want an emotional connection to the way you spend your money. Well, I think the same thing. It's an emotional connection to the way you spend your time. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Really smart. Uh, Jason Wheeler, CEO, Wealth Advisor for Pathfinder Wealth Consulting. He's big based back east in Wilmington, North Carolina, on site with us here in Colorado today. Have you been surfing today. to Japan? I've not been surfing you in know, Japan. There's yet. a great story in the magazine. Yeah, yeah. Business Week magazine. We're going to tell you a little bit more about it. What's all yeah, about? Excellent. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. This last trading day of the week. In fact, stocks just taking another leg up. We are pretty much, we are at our highs of the session, about 1.4% higher on each of those major equity averages. With us is Vance Bars. He is wealth strategist at Your Dedicated Fiduciary, based in San Diego, California, on site with us at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 National Conference. We actually caught up with him last night, talking a little bit about uh, what's been going on. Market volatility, uh, Vance, like we've seen this week, how does that help? Help or hinder what you do when you're working with your clients? That's an excellent question. Short-term market volatility is never of that much concern because most of the families that I serve have a very long-term view and have been investing long enough to feel comfortable with short-term market fluctuations. There is some concern over the recent inversion of the yield curve because some people are inclined toward propeller head thinking. And they go, I remember the last time the yield curve inverted. It was 2007. Right. Is it the same thing? Fed funds, you know, in May of 2007, was at 5.25%. Oh, no. And that's when all of the behavioral coaching comes into play. And so as you sort of take a step back, you know, we've had a chance, as Carol said, to catch up with you here. You're sort of like a man about the conference, I feel like. You know a lot of people are here, you know, working the work. It's great to see you. Sort and the of award doing for your the man thing. about the conference goes to? Vance Barris. He's <laughs> the man you. about the conference. Thank you're you. welcome. Um, but one of the things we were talking about, which I'm so intrigued by, is your synthesis and analysis of some of the megatrends we see in sort of society and business, not the least of which sort of gig economy and Airbnb and all these things and how that plays through to retirement. Tell us about that. So one of the really unique things that I've seen as a recent trend in retirement planning is the emergence of what are called ADUs. And ADU is an acronym for an accessory dwelling unit. Many of us know them as in-law suites or in my house, we call them the grandmother suite, right? Uh, Or the granny flat. (laughs) And what's interesting is people remember 2008. They remember the market correction. And they also remember the Fed funds rate being much higher back in 2007. And with this near decade that we've had of ZERP, or zero interest rate policy, 
yield-starved investors have had to find unique ways to make up for the difference in income. So, for right. example, if you worked for decades and decades and you saved up a million dollars in your nest egg, and you were to put that in the 10-year treasury back in 2007, you could earn, say, 50-plus thousand dollars, right? Fast forward to today, the 10-year is at 1.6%. So that income is all of a sudden 16000 So that's a big delta. Yeah. So what's really fascinating is with the emergence of Airbnb and Verbo or VRBO, we have seen this pretty profound interest in these accessory dwelling units for two reasons. One, owners want to use them for family members when they come and visit. But two, when they're not there, they like the additional income right. that they can get by renting them out. Yeah, I see that more and more with friends. So yeah. where my neighborhood, I even think about like my home when I retire, not getting close, but I think about not selling it. Is there something and, you want to tell me? <laughs> but not selling, you know, not, but using it as like a rental property in terms of income or something. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. You really, I see a lot more people talking about it. I have nothing to tell you. All right. I'm good. here for a while. All right. Good. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I feel like we're, one of the other things that we're, we're talking a lot about, and um, we've talked with you about as well, Vance, is this, you know, sort of holistic approach. I do feel like people are not sort of making these decisions in terms of who they work with maybe as quickly anymore. It's like, you got a guy, I'm going to use him, cool. Like, they're going to, you know, give me a model and I'm going to do these things with my stocks and bonds. And I'm going to have some money. Yeah, Yeah. see you next quarter. So, but how does that change what you do? You've worked as a consultant in this business before, so you sort of see it holistically. Um, How should people be sort of choosing someone to work with? Excellent question, Jason, and thank you very much for that. So prior to becoming a financial advisor, I spent roughly a decade as an investment consultant to many of this nation's leading private wealth and retail financial advisors at all different types of firms, wirehouses, independent broker-dealers, RAAs, family offices. So I have a pretty unusual perspective on how practitioners serve their clients, and I have an insider's knowledge, if you will, on the planning strategies that they offer, but many of the planning planning strategies, excuse me, that they don't offer. Mm. And that's where a lot of value can be brought. Many people select a financial advisor based on trust. And I propose that it's way more important than trust. It's about accountability. It's about transparency. It's about honesty. It's about integrity. And ultimately, what value will that practitioner bring to your overall planning life? How do you check that out, though? That's a great question. It really has to start with an analysis and an understanding of the tax return profile. And financial advisors say, well, I don't do tax planning. Well, that's okay, but you're tasked with serving someone in a pretty serious financial capacity. When you go to the doctor, and it's a new doctor, or if you go to a specialist, they typically want your general health history. So a financial advisor, in an analogous way, in serving as the doctor, should really get the general health history, which is comprised of the tax returns. You really have to understand the tax profile. And concurrent with that, having a deep understanding of the estate planning documents that are in place, the business assets, the real estate assets, you take all of those holdings and you put them together in a very comprehensive way to get an understanding of what we call the fact pattern. And then you really get to know the client. What are their intentions with their estate? What are their fears? Do they have charitable intent? What are the family politics like? And that's an art form that really takes 
very specific navigation. Yeah, I know we only have a minute left, but I also love the fact that in addition to you know the background that you described, like your undergraduate degree is in neurobiology, I think. So, I mean, you must be always thinking about like literally how someone's brain is working ar- around this stuff. Yeah, I, I was gifted for better or for worse with a very analytical brain. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, anyway, it, it does serve me well when yeah. conducting analyses on behalf of clients. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, this is my 12th year in attending Commonwealth conferences. So I used to attend as a consultant and used to see many of my clients here. And now it's wonderful to be here as a fellow colleague. Well, now we've solved the, we've solved the question, like why he's the man about the conference, because know. he already knows everybody. All right. Oh, well, it's you. great to thank catch you. up Good with you. Vance Bars is well strategist at a firm called Your Dedicated Fiduciary. It's based in San Diego, California. He's here with us at Commonwealth Financial Network's 2019 conference in Colorado. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.